Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. This is where we live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalbethanchel. Coming up, it's been called the worst humanitarian crisis in the world today. At least 18,000 people have been killed in Yemen's civil war. Carolyn Miles, president and CEO of Save the Children U.S., visited Yemen in March. She'll join us to talk about what she saw and how Save the Children, a Fairfield-based NGO, is trying to help the people in need. Many of them are malnourished women and children. We'll also check in with Connecticut's U.S. Senator Chris Murphy now that the Senate failed to override the president's veto of a resolution that would have ended U.S. involvement in the Saudi-led war in Yemen. First, last Monday we heard from two Connecticut Public Radio reporters about two police shootings in the state. And late last week, dash cam video was released in the Weathersfield fatal police shooting of 18-year-old Anthony Jose Vega Cruz. Connecticut Public Radio reporter Ryan Lindsay has been covering the story. She joins us now with the latest. Ryan, welcome back. Thank you for having me. Uh, so as I mentioned, this uh, video was released, this dash cam uh, footage uh, was released uh, on Friday. Can you briefly tell us uh, what the videos showed? Yes. So there were three videos. Uh, those three videos are not the uh, incident in its entire- entirety. They have been edited down, which is what uh, Gail P. Hardy, the state's attorney for Hartford, has told us. But one of the videos in particular, which is uh, there were two officers involved, Peter Salvatore and uh, Leu Ulysier. And so this dash cam footage video, one of the videos is from Salvatore's car. And so it's pretty much rolling during the duration of the incident um, from the first time he stops Vega Cruz until after he's been shot. So at that time, you can see the pursuit down Silas Dean Highway. Um, at that point, Ulysier's car comes into the frame makes a U-turn, uh, cuts across oncoming traffic, and then rams Vega Cruz's car. You can see Ulysier run up to Vega Cruz's car on foot with his gun drawn um, and then fire directly into the front windshield. At that point, the car pulls forward a couple feet, stops, uh, and then pulls off again and then comes to a complete stop for the last time. Uh, during that time, you can also see Ulysier with his gun pointed at the driver's side of the car and the passenger opens her door. Um, At that point, Officer Salvatore runs uh, across the street, and once he's in the parking lot, he then points his gun at uh, Stephanie Santiago, who is a passenger, uh, who then gets out the car with her hands up. So that's sort of the timeline of the footage. You can also see at one point in time when Salvatore catches up to uh, Cruz, it does look as if he's trying to hit his car as well, um, misses, and then does hit the car a second or a second time. And so there's basically two collisions with the car and um, the interaction of Ulysse on foot and then Salvatore is also on foot. So a lot a lot happening uh, in between those three videos. Mm. Uh, anything that uh, you saw and others saw in the video that, um, you know, when, when we heard about how uh, the police were talking about it, the Weathersfield Police Department, uh, before the dash cam uh, video was released, anything that was new um, from what those accounts were? Not necessarily. Well, yes, new, I'd say. Um, Weatherfield Police Department, because the investigation was initially taken over by the New Britain State's Attorney's Office and State Police and now is in the hands of the Hartford State's Attorney, um, they only had the initial statement about the 
um, pursuit itself. Um, and so that was just a couple days after. Any statement uh, thereafter has come from the state police. And what state police did say was that it appeared as if um, Vega Cruz drove at the officer. And so that's something that a lot of people, particularly people that knew him and people in the community and activists say that, that it doesn't appear to be that way. Um, one of his friends that I spoke with said that it looked as if the officer jumped in front of the car intentionally and then moved out of the way um, so that he wouldn't get hit. But then also you can look at the video and it does seem as if uh, Vega Cruz is trying to maneuver so that he doesn't hit the officer. Um, and that's before he's gotten shot and still has control over the car. Um, so it's something that you know, a lot of folks would say is subjective, and that's going to be the question at hand. Uh, one of the key questions at hand was, was the officer's use of force valid or justified? Um, could the officer say that he feared for his life, which is why he decided to shoot uh, directly into the front windshield, uh, hitting Vega Cruz uh, with that gunfire? Mm. Uh, this dash cam footage that was released about two weeks after uh, this 18-year-old uh, uh, man was uh, killed, you know, is this something that's unusual to get that footage uh, so quickly, even though the state's attorney's office is still investigating, Ryan? It does seem as if um, the, the dash cam footage as well as the body cam footage related to the New Haven and Yale incident have come out pretty quickly. Um, but it seems like at the very least, because these investigations tend to be drawn out over a series of months, that that's something that um, can be done in order to at least give the public some piece of information uh, while the investigation is ongoing. In studio with me again is Ryan Lindsay, reporter for Connecticut Public Radio and the Guns in America Public Radio Reporting Collaborative. As we get an update on uh, that story out of Weathersfield, where uh, 18-year-old Anthony Jose Vega Cruz was uh, fatally shot by a Weathersfield police officer. Uh, again, the dash cam footage released on Friday. Uh, you also covered uh, protests uh, after that footage was released. Uh, what did you hear from people at the protest, including friends and family of this man? Yeah, there was a lot of continued calls for accountability. Um, one of the things that protesters and uh, supporters have been raising is that the Weathersfield Town Council actually has the power to call um, a police department employee to appear before the council. And the town manager who serves as a di uh, director of public safety can also choose to fire someone from the police department. And so one of the things that they've been raising is that they feel as though this officer did violate uh, police policy. Um, and, the, and that's something that um, Attorney Hardy said is that she's working with state police to gather weather, Weatherfield Police Department policies um, because those are private documents. Uh, de every department has a different set of policy and procedures. Now, there are statewide policies, like, for instance, the pursuit policy is statewide. Um, but they want this level of accountability. They want the town of Weathersfield to run their own uh, independent investigation. So in theory, they could choose to fire this officer, um, perhaps on the grounds of policy, like a violation of policy. And that could be an independent action separate from whether or not the state's attorney investigation shows that his uh, use of force was justified or not. And so that's something that they're definitely calling for, and we'll probably continue to see actions in the community as Weatherfield has a regularly scheduled town councils 
police commission uh, meetings and things like that. We should mention a, a lot of uh, people um, wonder uh, whether the police officer should have shot at this moving vehicle. When you were on the show last week, we talked about how New York City had changed their policy. Police officers are no longer allowed to shoot at moving vehicles. Um, is that something that people are talking about again? Yes, they definitely want that policy um, to come into effect. And I think that's something you had um Winfield on the show last week as well. And it's something State that Senator Gary Winfield. Yes, thank you. Um, that's something that he's brought up in terms of one, having a way for the state to collect across the board police ins- uses of fatal and non fatal uses of force, which there's no central database or place where you can access just even a record of that. Um, and then also to implement some sort of policy that would not allow police to shoot into a moving vehicle because that can obviously cause. Um, increase uh, a, a threat to public safety if there's someone who's been shot and they're, they can no longer operate a moving vehicle, then that can create um, issues for across the board. I mentioned that you covered uh, the protests, uh, including uh, protesters marching uh, to the Wethersfield uh, mayor's house, uh, Wethersfield Mayor Amy Morin uh, Bello. You spoke to a friend of, of uh, Cruz, or known as Chulo. Uh, his name is Greg Brown. Let's hear what he had to say. Basically, what that told me was, you care about the grass, you care about the safety of those in power, but you don't care about the safety of those out here in these streets. You know, you don't care about the people who drive in and out of your city or the people who have to live here. He was actually a resident of Wethersfield. And he being uh, Anthony Jose Vega Cruz, who was fatally shot. Yes. So Greg Brown, he founded the Justice for Chulo Facebook group and has been organizing since uh, Chulo was shot on April 20th, um, Mayor Bello has put she did put out a statement on the 23rd of April saying that uh, what happened was a tragedy that saddened their small community, that her heart goes out to the Cruz family for the death of their loved one, as well as the officers officers involved. Um, and so she has made some statements, but I think part of the frustration, what I was noticing and hearing from protesters was that she has not directly addressed them. Um, Citroen, though he hasn't said much, he did come out. That's the police chief? Yes, the police chief, uh, James Citroen of Weatherfield Police Department. He did come out and um, address the crowd of protesters at one point last week. Um, to my knowledge, uh, Mayor Bell has not directly addressed the family or protesters, and that's what led them to actually march to her doorstep um, on Friday night. Uh, Ryan Lindsay, again, is a reporter for Connecticut Public Radio and the Guns in America Public Radio Reporting Collaborative. Uh, before we go, again, if you could remind us how long it'll take for the state's attorney's office to uh, complete this investigation. There is no um, definite timeline. These investigations generally we've seen can take um, several months, if not close to a year. Um, and so at this point, we just sort of have to wait and see uh, as Uh, Attorney Hardy said they're gathering information from the department, um, evidence, and then they also have to go and interview witnesses. Um, So what she did say is she wants this to be a thorough and comprehensive investigation uh, to help her determine whether the use of force resulting in Chulo's death was justified under the applicable law. Um, And so these things are challenging. Uh, They do take time. And, of course, people uh, want things to happen while this is unfolding, um, but you know we can we can really just keep waiting and, and seeing what's happening.
Ryan, thanks for coming in today. Thanks for having me. From Connecticut Public Radio, this is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Uh, after the break, we're going to turn our attention to Yemen, where a devastating civil war has killed at least 18,000 people. Carolyn Miles, president and CEO of Save the Children U.S., will join us after the break, as well as Connecticut's U.S. Senator Chris Murphy. And you can join the conversation, too, the number 860-275-7266, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. When Yemen's civil war began, the world's attention was on Syria. Now, four years later, the United Nations warns the death toll in Yemen could reach a quarter million people by the end of this year, many of them children. In a few minutes, we'll hear from Carolyn Miles, the president and CEO of Save the Children U.S. The NGO has been on the ground helping civilians, and Carolyn is back from a recent trip to the devastated country. Americans should pay attention to this story because the U.S. has been helping fuel a military campaign led by Saudi Arabia against Yemen. Just days ago, the U.S. Senate tried to override a veto by the president of a congressional resolution that would have ended U.S. involvement in that war. Joining us now to explain on the phone is U.S. Senator Chris Murphy, who's also a member of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. Senator Murphy, welcome back to the show. Hey, thanks for having me. So could you briefly explain uh, for our listeners uh, how much, when we talk about the U.S. participating, helping Saudi Arabia, what exactly, uh, what is U.S.'s role uh, in this campaign that Saudi Arabia um, is leading? Well, our uh, our involvement is significant. Uh, first and foremost, we sell the Saudis all of the planes and the munitions uh, that um, make up the equipment for this bombing campaign. So every bomb that's dropped on Yemen is sold to the Saudis by the United States. We have helped them consistently with targeting. Uh, we are embedded with their um, uh, targeting teams. Uh, and then uh, we have also at times um, just helped their, uh, their refueling missions by putting planes in the air um, to uh, allow their bombers to uh, get deeper into Yemeni territory. Mm. Uh, coming up, we're going to get some more context on uh, what uh, started this civil war and why Saudi Arabia is leading this campaign. But uh, Senator Murphy, when we're seeing the news, hearing it, uh, seeing the devastation, I mentioned uh, the death toll at least 18,000. It's probably much higher than that. But also uh, looking at uh, the death of civilians, uh, there was a, a bomb, a Saudi laser-guided bomb that struck a school bus of children there last August. Uh, when we look at this type of warfare, is it legal under international law? Um, the UN has come to the conclusion that this is likely a war crimes violation. The Saudis have been targeting civilians. They have admitted to intentionally hitting a school bus. There is no way that they continue to um, land bombs on um, healthcare facilities and weddings and churches um, uh, uh, by accident. Uh, and as you mentioned, the UN has come to the conclusion that there is probably a quarter million Yemenis who uh, are going to die over the course of this year, who are so sick and so malnourished that they cannot be saved. Uh, and these um, individuals are not just in the areas that are controlled by the rebels. They are also in areas controlled by the coalition. Um, the, that coalition is made up of the Saudi Arabians, the Emiratis and the United States. 
And so we are party to a war in which there are hundreds of thousands of people dying from starvation in parts of territory that are controlled by a military coalition that the United States is a part of. That is a big part of the reason why I believe the United States has to get out of this coalition as quickly as possible. A, we are potentially committing war crimes, and B, we are part of a coalition who is standing largely idly by while hundreds of thousands of men, women, and children uh, die of starvation. I mentioned that the Senate tried to override uh, the president's veto of this uh, Yemen war powers resolution that would have ended any U.S. involvement uh, in that war. Uh, What happened and what's your response to the fact that even though it was bipartisan, uh, the first go around uh, trying to override, uh, it was much harder. Now what, Senator Murphy? Well, we didn't get enough votes to override the president's veto. But as you mentioned, we had Republicans and Democrats who supported us. Uh, And the next step is to try to look to the appropriations process uh, to cut off the funding for this war, to stop the uh, sale of weapons to the Saudis and to uh, pull out any U.S. personnel that are helping them in this disastrous campaign. Uh, The Saudis use us um, not just for our logistical support, but for moral cover as well. Um, by uh, being able to reference the United States' support for this campaign, they feel like they can get away with uh, a lot more uh, civilian casualties than they would otherwise. Uh, and so we're going to look to the budget, the upcoming budget, as a means to try to shut down funding. Mm-hmm. Senator Murphy, before you go, uh, you know, what uh, impact will this have on our national security? Again, uh, Yemenis there uh, seeing America as uh, one of the reasons that uh, women and children are dying, uh, people are starving. Uh, this certainly doesn't bode well for our national security and uh, fueling uh, a sentiment, anti-American sentiment. Yeah, I mean, and that's, you know, one of the primary reasons why I work so hard on this. My responsibility as a United States senator is to um, enact policy to keep people in Connecticut and people in the United States free from harm. And what we know is that the most lethal arm of al-Qaeda, the arm that has the clearest intentions to attack the United States, uh, al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula, has been growing in strength over the last four years inside Yemen, Uh, because this civil war has given them more ungovernable space um, to to increase their numbers. ISIS, uh, which was an afterthought in Yemen, is now bigger and stronger than ever before. And as you referenced, Yemenis um, are being uh, radicalized. They don't see this as a Saudi-led bombing campaign. They see this as a U.S.-Saudi bombing campaign. And many of them are being pushed to these radical groups. So the likelihood of one of these organizations being able to launch an attack against the United States from Yemen um, is greatly enhanced by uh, the United States continuing to be a named partner in this coalition. This is the worst humanitarian catastrophe uh, in the world today, and it's not by accident. It's a coalition that is caused uh, in part by the United States being a participant in it, and we should get out as soon as possible. Uh, Senator Murphy, uh, are you hearing from your constituents where they want to see U.S. involvement end? Is this on Americans' radar, or is it that they want to see you focus more on domestic issues? What would you say to them? Well, you know, by and large, this isn't something that I hear a lot about in Connecticut. I will say that folks Um, are very wary of the United States getting entangled again in messy political wars in the uh, Middle East. 
Um, and, you know, ultimately, you know, that's what I worry about here, that this gets this quagmire becomes deeper and deeper. And then all of a sudden it is something that people in Connecticut are talking about on a regular basis. Um, yes, uh, people here want me to be much more focused on health care and jobs and the quality of our schools. Um, but this is a moral blight on our nation. It's something that our kids and grandkids are going to read about in the history books that we took part in a military campaign that caused perhaps as many as a million people, um, tens of thousands of children to die needlessly. Um, and I think it's my responsibility uh, as a United States senator to do something to stop that, even if it's on the other side of the world. Senator Murphy is also a member of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. Uh, we thank you for joining us today. Thanks a lot. Uh, this is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Again, uh, we're focusing in on Yemen. Uh, the civil war has been going on for four years. A lot of devastation that uh, may not be uh, front and center uh, in Americans' minds, but there is a lot of suffering going on, and we wanted to learn more about the context uh, surrounding that situation, but also what's happening on the ground. Uh, so joining me now in studio is Carolyn Miles. She's president and CEO of Save the Children U.S. That's based in Fairfield, Connecticut. Uh, Carolyn visited Yemen in March. Uh, Carolyn, welcome. Welcome to our show. Thank you, Lucy. Great to be here. I wanted to let our listeners know, also joining us today uh, from Washington, D.C., is Ambassador Barbara Bodine. She's a former U.S. ambassador to Yemen and is also director of the Institute for the Study of Diplomacy at Georgetown University. Ambassador Bodine, thank you for being here as well. Thank you. I wanted to start with Carolyn uh, because you didn't just return about a month and a half ago uh, from uh, Yemen. Uh, Describe uh, where you were and what you saw. Sure. Well, I went to both the north and the south uh, in Yemen, uh, so Sana and Aden, which are the two areas that are controlled by the different uh, governments, if you will, um, in Yemen at this point. And my reason for going was to visit Save the Children's Programs. It's the largest NGO working in Yemen, and we've been there since the beginning of this war and actually prior to that. Yemen's a really poor country and always has been, but this war is greatly impacting, uh, particularly families with children. And right now, there are about 24 million people in Yemen who are in need of assistance. So it is a huge humanitarian crisis, actually the largest in the world uh, for Save the Children. And, you know, unfortunately, when you take a very poor country and you put a war on top of it, it is really, really tough. Um, About 40 kids a month are being killed uh, or injured by bombs. Um, it is, we are really calling for the end of that war because that's really what's impacting uh, children and families so much. Many people are having great difficulty just feeding their families. So one of the programs I went to see was uh, what we call a stabilization center, which is where mostly moms bring very malnourished children. And at the point when they come to these centers, they're usually so malnourished, they have to be fed intravenously. They can't actually eat. They're so weak. They're so unable to um, just survive on their own. So those centers are feeding kids intravenously until they're well enough that they can take food home. And I met one mom, uh, Asma, who described to me you know, the challenges that she has just getting food on the table. And her young son was in very, very bad shape. She was very grateful to have a place to take him so that he could recover. But she said, I don't know when I go back what will change, what will be any better. I can't um, get to the grocery store to get anything. And even if I could, the prices are so high because of the blockades and all the 
things that are influencing and, and stopping people from having a normal life. So that's just one story, that uh, one thing that I saw when I was there. I referenced Syria earlier because uh, so much of the world's attention was on Syria uh, because of the devastating uh, civil war there, as well as uh, the many refugees that have left. Uh, Yemen, uh, they're seeing a similar uh, devastation, but you mentioned it's such an impoverished country. It's not easy for Yemenis to leave? No, it's very, it's very difficult for Yemenis to leave because they don't have the resources to leave. So what's happening is people are moving from place to place. They're moving from an area that maybe is in the midst of um, severe conflict and bombing, and they're going to another place. But, but actually, that's not safe either. Um, the week after I left uh, Yemen, a hospital where Save the Children was supporting, paying for all the health workers, all the supplies, that hospital was bombed. That was supposed to be a deconflicted area. It was a place where people had moved from another area. Um, and when that bombing occurred, eight people died, including five children. Mm -hmm. So there are very few safe places for people to go, and they can't, they can't leave the country. They don't have the resources to be able to leave the country. Uh, Ambassador Bodine, uh, if you could tell us more about uh, Yemen. Again, it's a country that uh, probably uh, many Americans don't know a lot about. Uh, the perception is it's in the Arabian Peninsula. It must be oil rich <laughs> like its neighbors. Uh, tell us uh, yes. really uh, how it ended up being so uh, unstable and impoverished. Um, well, first of all, thank you. And the Listening to both the senator and and the president of Save the uh, the Children has has given a lot of context. Um, Yemen suffers from this perception that because it's on the peninsula, it must be oil rich. There is a Yemeni folktale um, that when God created the Arabian Peninsula, which is sort of rectangular shaped, that he tipped it in one direction and all the oil flowed there. And then he tipped it the other direction, and all the people ended up there. Uh, Yemen has always had a much higher population than any of its neighbors. But, for example, it's about the size of Texas, but it has no rivers, no lakes, and no fresh water year-round. Uh, it's extraordinarily mountainous, uh, lives off of monsoon rain, so it has no oil, um, none to speak of, uh, really no water, a very high population concentration, was cut off from the outside world until probably the late 60s, early 70s, and so never really developed, didn't have the resources to develop, uh, and did has not had very good governance, um, mostly due to capacity. So it is one of the 20 poorest countries in the world, uh, one of the chronically uh, impoverished countries. Mm -hmm. And even before the war, it was food insecure, water insecure, fuel insecure, medicine insecure, and very much dependent on the work of organizations like Save the Children and a lot of assistance from governments around the world. So as uh, was just said, you layer on top of that an internationalized civil war and you end up with the worst humanitarian catastrophe anywhere right now. Mm -hmm. We heard uh, Carolyn uh, Miles, ambassador, talk about uh, she visited the North and the South, which um, mm -hmm. is ruled by two different governments. So if you could explain the context and, and what happened after the Arab Spring that, that launched this country into a civil war. Um, 
There's actually more than two governments, even two Yemeni governments in many ways um, right now. There was a an Arab Spring in Yemen. Uh, there was a transition period. It was relatively peaceful compared to others. Uh, there was a national dialogue conference uh, where they sought to work out a new social contract. The process stalled. Uh, and as it stalled, the economy stalled. Um, and the Houthi, who were an insurgent group for 10 years prior, uh, marched into Sana'a, uh, took over the government, and then uh, moved south as far as Aden. There would have been a civil war in Yemen in all likelihood. Uh, the Houthi were not universally supported, um, a lot of resistance in areas they were moving into. The Where it went tragically off the tracks was at the end of March of 15, the Saudis, and I think it's important that the Emiratis are really the major actors here, the Saudis and the Emiratis decided to intervene on behalf of the technically legitimate interim government uh, headed by a gentleman named Hadi. Uh, this qualitatively changed the nature of the conflict and has led to both a stalemate uh, politically, a stalemate or a quagmire militarily, and a humanitarian catastrophe for the people. Mm. Uh, Carolyn, uh, because of this political instability, how difficult is it for Save the Children and other organizations to get help uh, to the Yemenis? Um, we, sh we haven't even mentioned yet more context about the blockade and how the food isn't even yeah. getting uh, to the country. Yeah, it's been extremely difficult um, for Save the Children. We have uh, about uh, 700 staff people there and about 2,000 volunteers who are all Yemenis working uh, to mm -hmm. try to get health care and uh, water and food to uh, to people in need. And about every week, we close down one part of our program or another because of the danger of being in that place and the inability to get out uh, or get around. So that's been really, really difficult. Hodaida, the port, um, is now mm -hmm. somewhat open. So that issue has gotten better in the last uh, couple of months since there was a big meeting in, in Sweden to look at how the humanitarian aid could flow better. But it's been extremely difficult. And I do worry that our, our teams there are in great danger. Um, it is not an easy place to work. And so our staff there, I think, really do this work at, their, at, at great peril. You mentioned the hospital bombing. Did that impact your staff? Yes. So there were two uh, community health workers that were employed by Save the Children. They both died. Um, five children. And this is a regular occurrence. This isn't something that um, just comes and goes. So getting people... To, and now, having said that, I would say that meeting the team there um, and meeting the, especially the Yemeni staff there, they're amazing people. And they are doing an amazing job. And they are really very dedicated to getting this work done. But it's at, at a lot of risk. And a lot of the health facilities at this point, too, are in great need of uh, improving that the infrastructure and being able to actually serve the people. So there's a, a tremendous lack of, of health care. And when I was there, you know, we visited with a, one of the doctors there who was uh, employed by Save the Children. 
and he was really proud to show me the incubators that he had. But in each incubator, there were three babies, oh, not no. one baby. Hmm. So that gives you some yeah. sense of what people are struggling with yeah. every day. Uh, this is where we live. You're hearing Carolyn Miles, president and CEO of Save the Children U.S., uh, based in Fairfield, Connecticut, but also providing humanitarian relief uh, to Yemenis uh, because of a civil war there, also a Saudi-led military campaign that's making the situation uh, even more dire. Uh, with us from Washington, D.C. is Ambassador Barbara Bodine, former U.S. ambassador to Yemen. Uh, ambassador Bodine, uh, explain a little bit more about you know why is Saudi Arabia so intent on focusing on Yemen, and uh, again, you know, this military campaign that started. Uh, if you can give us a little more context about, um, <laughs> you know, why does this, why is this still persisting, and despite uh, calls for uh, the U.S. and other uh, people uh, to not support Saudi Arabia in this way? Well, first of, uh, oh, explaining this war. <laughs> um, what brought this what the saudis what the saudis say is the reason that they came in in march uh and i think from the saudi point of view um it's it's a sincere perception is the houthi do receive support uh from iran uh and saudi arabia and iran are implacable enemies uh, not just simply rivals for political influence, but but enemies, and the Saudis saw a Iranian-supported group taking over all of Yemen or the population part um, as an existential threat to them, and so I think this is what prompted them to come in. I think they overestimated um, how effective their considerable military capabilities would be in reversing the Houthi. Um, and this has been stalemated since at least July of, of 15. The Emirates are equally, if not more, engaged. Uh, we tend to always refer to this as the Saudi-backed coalition. But the Emiratis actually have boots on the ground, uh, they support a number of local forces uh, that are not necessarily allied with the Hadi government, uh, which is backed by Saudi Arabia. Um, and they've also supported a large number of mercenaries. So the ground campaign is being run by the Emiratis, um, who seem to have a slightly different agenda of wanting to control the coastline and the major ports. Uh, a very, very different um, agenda. And as I said, there's not just two governments. There's now mm -hmm. probably closer to three. There's the Houthi-controlled area in the north. There is the Hadi government supported by the Saudis, which has its own southern national council. And then the Emiratis are supporting a different group of southerners called the Southern Transition Council. So we have at least three different governments uh, in formation. We have the Iranians, the Saudis, the Emiratis involved. Uh, and then you have a civil war of its, uh, a local civil war going on. So this has become a incredibly complicated, overlapping, uh, reinforcing kaleidoscope of alliances, actors, affiliations, animosities. Mm -hmm. 
There is an agreement that was signed in December in Stockholm, which is supposed to start the peace process. Um, it has, as Caroline said, been somewhat successful in Hodeida. But at the same time, the fighting down south in the Taiz area has actually ratcheted up and become far more intense and threatens to cut off the roads between Sana'a, Aden, and Taiz, which are the three major cities. Uh, Ambassador Bodine, we heard from uh, Connecticut's U.S. Senator Chris Murphy earlier uh, about the fact that the Senate failed to override uh, this veto, the president's veto of the Yemen War Powers mm -hmm. Resolution. I mean, wh what was your response uh, when you first saw that there was bipartisan support for the resolution, but now that um, they weren't able to override, are you optimistic that the U.S. will be able to end any type of involvement in this war? Well, I think we have a fairly strong disagreement on what we should be doing between Congress and the White House. Um, I was very pleased to see the congressional vote in favor of this resolution. Uh, it's the highest vote count we have received in over four years of, of this war. was not surprised to see that there was not a veto override, but I think it was still significant what Congress has done because it signals to our partners, the Saudis and the Emiratis, that uh, there is a limit to U.S. support. Um, and the blank check that they have been given by the White House um, has a bit of a, of a conditionality on it, a caveat on it. I'm not sure that it has registered in Riyadh uh, that this support is not open-ended, um, but I think it may be in Abu Dhabi, in the Emirates, who are far more sensitive to this. My concern is that while Congress is starting to question this open-ended support for what the UN has has said is possible war crimes, is that the administration, the White House, is actually ratcheting up its bellicose language vis-a-vis -vis Iran. And there's a part of me is, that is concerned that the White House may decide to draw the line in the sand on the Iranians uh, in Yemen and actually increase its support rather than reduce its support. Kellen Miles. So I would just so thank you, Ambassador. I, I think the urgency of some kind of solution here for from a humanitarian standpoint is really important to know. Um, one of the things that we're seeing is a really high increase in things like cholera. So there are now 100,000 children in Yemen who are suffering from cholera. Cholera can be treated if you can get kids into a very basic medical um, uh, center to get them rehydrated. If not, they will die, right? So, and that case of those cases of cholera is two times what it was at this time last year. We have 400,000 women, pregnant moms, who have been admitted for malnutrition, right? The rate of miscarriages when a mother of a woman is mal malnourished when she's carrying a child is extremely high. So, and that ca those that caseload again is about double what it was just last year. So there's a real urgency here, I think, uh, in pushing for an end to this war in terms of the impact and the loss of life that we're going to see in Yemen. So, I just wanted to 
to put that out there. I know this is a difficult and really uh, complex political situation, but I think the U.S.'s support of this, um, you know, the bombing and the war needs to stop if we're going to save children. Um, so that's really important to us. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Karen Miles, again, is in studio with us, president and CEO of Save the Children U.S. as we learn more about uh, Yemen. As also with us from uh, NPR's D.C. studios, Ambassador Barbara Bodine, former U.S. ambassador to Yemen and director of the Institute for the Study of Diplomacy at Georgetown University. We're going to continue our discussion after the break, and you can join us too, 860-275-7266, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is where we live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalbathanchel. No one knows how long the civil war in Yemen will last, but the conflict has already had terrible consequences on the country's youngest generation. In studio with me is Carolyn Miles, president and CEO of Save the Children U.S., uh, based in Fairfield, Connecticut. Also with us, Barbara Bodine, former U.S. ambassador to Yemen, also director of the Institute for the Study of Diplomacy at Georgetown University. Um, ambassador Bodine, uh, we were talking about uh, you know why the U.S. is involved in a lot of the, the complicated mm-hmm. uh, political uh, context, uh, again, uh, the relationship that Iran may have with these Houthi rebels. But I'm curious, are these uh, the Houthis really lockstep with Iran? Uh, I'm just curious about um, uh, their relationship and right. what this means moving forward uh, because of what you mentioned with the Trump administration uh, fixated mm-hmm. on Iran and, and what will happen next. Yeah, that's an excellent question. Um, first of all, I do want to underscore that I very much agree with Carolyn that we really need to focus on this humanitarian catastrophe and not lose sight of that. No, the Houthi are um, a local insurgency, and uh, they were actually at war with the previous government, the pre-Arab Spring government of Ali Abdullah Saleh, for almost 10 years, uh, primarily due to a lack of uh, political voice, a lack of government support. Um, They are not of the same Shia school as the Iranians, and that's an important distinction. They're not created by Iran, and they don't take direction from Iran. So the idea that they are Iranian sock puppets uh, and that Iran directs what they do is is uh, not supported by history or, or current facts. They are aligned with them. They do take support from them. Um, there is a lot of debate about the exact degree of Iranian support. Um, Iran is an actor here, and I don't want to underestimate that. And it, it is malign, but um, it's primarily political. And so... Even, well, I would say a lot of people within our government and sometimes even Saudis do admit that when we do finally bring this war to an end, the Houthi are going to be political players in whatever new government emerges. So they are indigenous actors. They're not the Taliban. They're not Hezbollah. uh, They're a Yemeni insurgency. Mm -hmm. 
Uh, we heard Senator Murphy mention al-Qaeda earlier, uh, and it's no uh, secret uh, what their goals are in terms of Westerners and anti-American sentiment. Um, this fear of radicalization when the war ends, uh, what this means for uh, the people left in Yemen and how they view America? Is this a, a dangerous uh, place that we're in, Ambassador Bodine? I think that, that was a good point that the senator brought up. Um, Al-Qaeda has been able to operate in the ungoverned spaces of Yemen. And with this internationalized civil war, there are large swaths of the country that are being just plain ignored. And Al-Qaeda has been able to move from being just a terrorist group, just from being a terrorist group to actually creating some governance in its in its areas, and that makes it even more of a problem. The radical, the anti-Americanism that we are feeding by supporting the Iraq, the Saudis and the Emiratis, is going to be, I think, deeper and more corrosive than just those who are radicalized and join AQAP. Um, this was a country that was perhaps not an ally of ours, but was a friend of ours. There is a very, very large Yemeni-American community in this country. And what we are doing is losing an entire country. Um, our ability to be constructive, positive partners with a Yemen that comes out of this conflict, we're losing that ability to be a part of Yemen's future and therefore be able to stabilize this country and create the conditions where there can be the kind of health system, the kind of education system, the kind of economy that Yemen needs to at least be a credible country once again. Mm. Carolyn Miles, we just have a, a few minutes left. Uh, we've talked about the health consequences, the cholera, the uh, malnourishment, the uh, people are starving in Yemen. Uh, what are some other impacts on the children, uh, even when we think about who are fighting these wars mm -hmm. and uh, you know, family networks, uh, uh, lack of education uh, for these young people? So to, to pick up on some of the points the ambassador made, a future the future of a country is based on the future of their children, right? And the children of Yemen at this point have very few opportunities. One of the things that we always see in situations like this, and we're certainly seeing in Yemen, and I saw it when I was there on the ground, great increase in child marriage. So girls that are as young as 13, 14 are getting married off. Um, their families think that's actually the best thing for them. It's a security thing. It's uh, about having what they think is a future. But of course, when a girl gets married at 13, she drops out of school. So her education ends. She probably has a baby by the time she's 14. That baby is likely to be less healthy than if she waited you know, four or five more years. She's more likely to die in childbirth, giving birth to that child, especially in the situation where she's likely to be malnourished, as I mentioned. And that cycle of poverty just starts all over. So for girls, this is a very, very uh, tough moment uh, for Yemeni girls. And we see that increase in child marriage. And I certainly talked to some girls while I was there who were saying that's exactly what their families had planned for them. For boys, they are often uh, fighting on both sides, actually, on all sides of the conflict. And as the ambassador said, there's many different sides in this conflict. And we see boys that are oftentimes 
conscripted into military service again at the age of 12 or 13, given a gun and told this is what your job will be now going forward. And for a family that has not enough money to even buy food and put food on the table, anything that is able to offer some kind of economic benefit um, is going to be looked upon, at least considered. And so if we have a country where children are all dropping out of school at this early age, are being married off, are going to fight, um, you know, that is not a good future for the country. And to the ambassador's point, when this, when this country comes out of war, what will be the future for, for these children and for these young people? One of the things that Save the Children always does in any emergency, and we certainly are working on a large scale to do this in Yemen, is to try to keep kids in school. So we have many, many schools set up. They might be in a tent. They might be in an abandoned building. They might be next to a school. Um, but trying to get refugee kids into school, uh, in, uh, internally displaced kids, sorry, into school is really important. And I have to say, when you go to these schools, you know, the great thing about children is they are incredibly resilient. I met a, a young girl, uh, Shifa, and she told me the happiest moment of her day was coming to school in the morning. She was only able to go to school for about three hours, but those were the happiest days, um, hours of her day. And she was so incredibly grateful to the teacher that was there, a local Yemeni woman who was teaching these children in a tent. Um, there probably were 150 of them, uh, all eager to learn, to stay in school, to have an education. So. You know, it can be done, but it's really tough. And I think we have to keep our eye on the longer-term view, which means that we have to give children in Yemen an opportunity, first, to survive, mm -hmm. and secondly, to, to get an education and to have a life. Or we're going to have um, a lot of challenges, I think, in keeping this country as one that is a friend to the United mm -hmm. States. So very, very tough, I think. We're going to have to leave it there. Kellen Miles, again, is president and CEO of Save the Children U.S. Thank you for coming in today. Thank you, Lucy. Also, Ambassador Barbara Bodine, former U.S. Ambassador to Yemen, now director of the Institute for the Study of Diplomacy at Georgetown University. Ambassador Bodine, thanks for filling in the context. My pleasure. Thank you. Uh, today's show produced by Carmen Baskoff. Our technical producer is Kion Wolf. You can learn more about the show at wmpr.org slash where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. As always, thanks for listening.